the Church of Philadelphia is, um, it, it was established by, I want to look at my notes, by King um, Catalyst II, and it was called, it's in, Philadelphia should not be called a city of brotherly love. It's a mistranslation of Philadelphia. It was named Philadelphia, which in Greek means um, for the one who loves his brother. So King Atlas was very open about his love for his brother. They served together and his affection for his brother. So the city was named for the emperor or for this king and that to pay homage because he was so open about how he loved his brother. It was, it was named Philadelphia or Philadelphus, which means um, the one who loves his brother. So you, you can't call the city of brotherly love. You've got to say the city where one guy loves his one brother. It's not like the mayor loves his brother, Philadelphia. But it's just been twisted and changed. And like, go, don't go to Philadelphia make a big deal about it. I'm just saying it's one of those funny things in history that a city in the Bible, a city in modern-day Turkey, the translation and the reason it's called Philadelphia is this. It's been turned into the city of brotherly love. And I don't know if you've ever been to Philadelphia. I don't know if it's very brotherly loving or not. But... Um, that's what we're talking about today. Um, so again, going around the horn of the cities, we have Smyrna, we talked about Sardis, and then we have where we have um, Philadelphia. Now, it is in a unique spot. It's in a high plateau plain with lots of green agriculture on one of its ge- the geographic, the um, western uh, side of the city, which has these north-facing slopes, which are fantastic for growing grapes. So I don't know if you know anything about viniculture. Um, I took the geography of wine in college to get my endorsement to teach geography to high school students, so it has no application whatsoever um, to teaching high school kids. Um, but the class I took, that's what you look for. You look for north-facing slopes so that the wind comes across the grapes and you don't get mold and you don't get them too hot and you need the north-facing slope. And so Philadelphia is set up perfectly for this grape-growing spot. So on those slopes, they're kind of facing to the north, and they have these great winds that come across. So wine was a big deal um, to this area. And so we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. Um, There's only a few ruins left in modern-day Turkey of Philadelphia. It's pretty much been ransacked over the years. It's been leveled. There's a few columns laying around. It's not like some of the other areas. And honestly, there's not been a lot of archaeological digging happening in this area. Um, It's just not really a thing. You might, might recognize um, one section of, of this city, the famous steps of Philadelphia, where one of the most, oh, come on, work, my big crescendo moment, the famous Philadelphia spot where I lost their mind. Okay, we'll move on. Rocky, of course. What's really going on is we have this plateau happening. Um, with the Lycus River and the Miranda River, and then you have Laodicea and Colossus, and you have um, Hierapolis. So this triplet cities existed in this plains region, massive agriculture, um, lots of things happening in this flat plains valley. And Philadelphia is up there and around the corner, and so where it's located makes it a massive trade route. Um, so there's all this trade coming through this area and commerce, and there was great um, leatherworking happening in Philadelphia, and there was the wine culture, and there the grapes and vineyards, and all these things coming through. And what essentially the city was set up as was a missionary city to spread Greek culture into the rest of Asia. And so as Greek culture comes through and comes to this valley, it's kind of like a king's highway that we see in Israel, but not quite. And so you see this, this the comes through here 
slogan and the whole goal was for Greek culture to come out of this region. It's the spread of Greek culture. And so Philadelphia is it's a missionary city. It's a missionary city for the spread of Greek culture, and it becomes a missionary city for the spreading of the gospel. And so we see kind of this as it's this really important high plateaued city is a place of agriculture and means, but then it's also a place where people are always stopping, shopping, um, retooling, refitting. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. The letter begins, and to the angel, should start sounding familiar to you, of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the one, or sorry, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So it starts off with Holy One and True One. Now this city was known to be, since it's named and after a king, and then it becomes a place of Roman, Greek, Greek missionary culture, and then the Romans take over and becomes a place of kind of Roman domination, and it continues through its journey. Um, there are emperors that took after this city, took care of this city. The earthquakes that we've seen, um, that we'll, next week when we talk about Laodicea, uh, they were Philadelphia needed help. They were a city that was taken care of by the king, taken care of by the Roman Empire. Um, earthquakes were constantly shaking them. They're right on the fault line. Um, as soon as things would happen, they would scatter to the hills to run from the earthquakes were going to happen. They were wiped out multiple times. And it was so bad, and they needed so much help, that the Roman emperor ceased their taxation for a five-year period, saying, don't pay your taxes. you got to take care of yourself. So the city is a place that has kind of a a bit of an honor towards the Roman emperor during this time because, but there's also some some dissension we'll get to in a minute. Um, but there's there's some stuff going on. So when Paul, I'm sorry, when John writes and he quotes us out of, he kind of brings us back to Isaiah 22, he, he, he's wanting to make a mark in the sand that Jesus, the Holy One and the True One, because most of these cities you had to proclaim the end that the emperor was God. And so he's saying the Holy One and the True One, that all of these kings and all these people have come before you, they might have been leaders. They claim to be God, but are they really holy? Are they really true? Is it really pan out? And then he draws back to 22 where he says, um, the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And the keys of heaven are in the hands of Jesus. That when he saves, he saves, and when he shuts the door and there's judgment, he's shutting the door. That the keys of eternity are in the hands of the Holy One and the True One. And we've seen in all the other areas, we've talked about the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, the words of him who has eyes like a flame. The words, but this is the one that just kind of lays out there a little different. He's holy. He's true. This is the one who's writing to you. We'll get into why I think this is happening. Because this church isn't, the church in Philadelphia is the one that's, there's no, there's no issues here. There's no poking. There's no correction. It's a, it's a letter of encouragement to this church. They're doing everything right. So why would he say these things? I would argue that he's, this letter, knowing it's going to be read to this church in this city, he's giving them a confidence boost to then take this message into the city. It's a bit of rebellion. It's a bit of, how, how dare you say you're in charge? Because during this time, um, there's a king right after, in about 90 AD, there's a king 
Um, there's wars going on in Rome. There's lots of stuff happening. The emperor, um, I think it's Diocletian, but I'll look at my notes. I could be completely wrong. He, he sends out an edict that cuts wine production in half because the Romans need grain to feed the troops. And so the city of Philadelphia is very much dependent upon wine being grown for produce, for its, for its industry, for selling, for its part of their entire cultural heritage. I mean, it's a big deal for this city. People are coming through to trade. They use it to gain other foods. They use it to gain other goods. Wine and grapes are a huge deal for them. And so for the emperor to pass out a complete edict that says, cut it in half, I need grain, I need wheat instead, for bread, for the troops, for the war effort. And so here's Jesus speaking to Philadelphia in the midst of this happening, saying the emperor who says he's your king and he's a god, he's not the one true one or the holy one. Jesus holds the keys to eternity. So you don't have to listen. You don't have to, the one who's trying to ruin your life and beat you down and mess with your systems of, of commerce, he's not the one. Jesus holds the keys to eternity. It's giving the offer of pain and suffering under the rule of an emperor or the promise of eternity and all that's good in the presence of God from Jesus. I think it was a, it was a missionary evangelistic gift as they're reading this letter into the city, into the church, and it spreads amongst the city. I think it has a great impact. But I could be wrong. No commentary already said that. I'm just trying to think that I can use my own brain. I could be wrong. Um, I know it works. Behold, I set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue... Sorry, we'll go get to that in a minute. This church isn't a church with tons of people. This is not a mega church. This is not a church with massive influence. We get to a man where he talks about the synagogue of Satan. There's an active Jewish group in the city that's going against them. They're in a, a, a Roman-held territory that's very much into the Roman culture. And so you have all these things coming against them. They're not, they're not going to be in the cover of Christianity today. They're not going to make all the big conferences. The pastor of the church in Philadelphia is not going to be asked to get big book deals. They're not going to be asked to show up at some giant mega conference where there's thousands of other pastors there. It's not going to be asked that. But this church is faithful with what it has. It has a small outpost in a very important missionary city, and it is a sending church. And it knows who it is. They're not trying to be the church down the street. They're not trying to be the one they read about down in the big city. They're not trying to be they're not trying to be that. They're faithful to the word of God and they're faithful to what God has for them and they're comfortable with that. I had to my brain went straight to making illusions of this church. Not that we've got it all figured out and we're perfect. But in us, first Christian church in Laramie, Wyoming how many times have we talked about in this church how many times people are sent out of here? Maybe not as full-time missionaries and supported by our budgets, but how many people have come through this church, have been here for maybe four years as a college student, maybe a couple years working in this town, maybe ten years, a decade here, and then they're sent out? How many people have come through this church and ended up in cities all around this country and all around the world? A lot. I mean, that's... That's one of the 
beauties of Laramie, and it's also one of the things that rips a lot of our hearts out. I'll never forget, uh, was, it's been three years ago, I think, Savannah sixth grade. So in third grade, Savannah had two of her greatest friends, great little girls. They had all kinds of fun together and play dates, and within a three-month period, they both moved. I remember having a conversation with Amber. This kind of stinks. Like, they, they, these kids are fantastic. Like, they're great friends. Like, this is, this is kind of hard. But I want my kids to have, like, the crew. That's what I've always wanted. It's like the crew. Where there's, like, three or four guys that Eli can have a crew with and maybe a couple gals that Savannah can have a crew with and they go through high school together and they hold each other accountable. And my preference is that they're also, like, you know, believers and in the church and good families and all that kind of thing. But I just, I want, like, their identity, all the stuff that happens through... Because I moved around. My parents divorced. I was in Arizona in part of seventh grade and in a different school in eighth grade. And it was kind of hard. And so I, I liked the idea of some security for them. And then when it wasn't happening, I'm like, ugh. It really changed a lot of the way that I had to start thinking about how to pastor this church. Because a lot of the stuff that I read and been a part of was all about growing the body, coming together, being a family. We're all going to be here together forever. And instead, I had to start changing, going, this is really kind of, it's not just a college town. It almost has a military town feel. It you for three, four years, and then you might leave. And so instead, it's like, we've got to put roots down fast and have effect and have, and then there's also like all of us who are now townies. I've been here seven years, so I can call myself a townie now, can't I? Almost. I'm three years away from my lifetime fishing license and my lifetime... Con- I'm like, I'm like, just three more years and I'll... Yes, can't wait. Um, but, but this also causes some of us who have put roots down. It causes us to have a little bit of a... a little bit of an arm's length with people, doesn't it? You've lived here your whole life. There's a little bit of... You're going to move. You're going to... I don't know. I don't know if I... I don't know. And I felt like it's like I, that's been part of my job is to start cutting some of that down. Like, come on, just invite me in. You get three years with somebody. That's amazing. You're not promised anything. But you get three years with them, four years with them. Yeah, it stinks. And now with social media and everything else and Facebook and FaceTime, you still talk and visit and get on a plane. It's awesome. And so I, I look at Philadelphia and I look about a little bit of our situation here. And I'm not saying we're, that God will look upon us and call us. Good and faithful like Philadelphia. I pray you would. But I think of this church where it's the constant growth of people. Constant people coming through. Constant trade. Constant coming through. And that's, I think it's very much like Laramie. Very much like Laramie. And for him to say to this church, I've said before, you have an open door which no one is able to shut. Like He's got his hand upon him. No one is going to smash you. No one's going to crush you. All the stuff you've been through, all the things you've been through, all the stuff you've seen, nothing is going to crush you. I've put you here for a reason. In this place, I know you don't feel you're a big statue. You're not like a big church in Jerusalem. or You know, you're, not, you're no Antioch. You're no Antioch. But you got a job to do. And you're faithful with what you've been given. And he's proclaiming. Even though you have little power, you've kept my word and not denied my name. As people have come against you, the synagogue of Satan we'll read about in a second, as people have come against you, you refuse to back down from the truth. And because of that, the door will always be open to you. It will always be open to you. Pretty cool praise.
Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now what is this saying? Now this is again, this is, we get into the prophetic, the apocalyptic, the, the future stuff is kind of coming out. So this city has, like two of the other cities we talked about, that has a, there's a Jewish um, group uprising kind of that's coming against this church. That they're rebels. I mean, you, you, you can see how this would happen as the offshoot of Christ and Christianity has grown out of the Jewish culture and then you have a Jewish group in that town. They're not going to be very happy with this other group. And so they keep coming against, keep trying to twist, just like the crowds scream crucify Jesus, all those things. There's, there's this constant push. And so Jesus is acknowledging that. But there's going to come a time when they're going to bow down before your feet and they're going to know that Jesus is real. Well, this is getting to end times judgment. This is not Jesus saying, one day you're going to go fight the synagogue and conquer them. This is all getting into future context. Okay? He's saying there's going to come a time when the people who have been against you are going to bow before you. Verse 10. Because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this is probably one of the... It's, this is a hotly contested passage of scripture by scholars. Um, this gets into tribulation, this gets into rapture, it gets into, and people disagree over this text. Um, that, the phrase, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, the, the, with the phrasings of the whole world, this is judgment of the whole world, and if this is Jesus' first proclamation that the people of God will not go through that trial, I'll keep you from the hour of trial. This is where pre-tribulation, rapture, um, scholars or teachers land. That this is one of the proofs that when Jesus comes to judge the earth, those in the rapture won't be part of it. This is like number one. We'll get into many more from 6 to 19, but this is the one beginning of this kind of proclamation. This shows that when Jesus returns, um, the, the believers on earth will not be part of the trial. And I think that's a sound argument. I don't know that this really lends to that. Um, I'm not so sure that we should put a stake in the ground to that. Um, but what it does promise, that what we're getting the judgment is not for the believer. And that's what I really want you to see. Because we'll get into the more nitty-gritty of all the stuff later. But judgment isn't for the believer. If you profess a faith in Christ, you are his child, you will not be part of the judgment in this time. The debate is, do you get raptured? Do you sit on earth and see the pain and judgment coming to the Gentiles or coming to the non-believers for a while, and then you're raptured up? Or do you get to witness all of the judgment, and then you are partnered with Christ? You have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. The tribulation is the time of judgment, and people disagree. Those three things, and there's great scholarly study on all three, and I'm okay if you land in any one of those three. The point is, judgment isn't for the believer. Okay? We'll get into the more deep. I've got a chart and, and handouts, and it'll be great um, in a few weeks. But <clears throat> this passage is the beginning of, of linking these things together for people who would land on the rapture. And if I'm honest, like I, I don't, 
rapture to be the way it is because I don't want to suffer. That's my, that's my desire because I want to claim it. I want to not see other people suffering. I don't like that. I don't like the idea of watching other people suffer in the judgment. I'm not happy about that. Um, I think anybody with a Christian pastoral heart, you don't want anyone to suffer. You want them to come to Christ. You want them to be a part of the kingdom. You don't want people to be in that kind of pain. And so that's, if, I mean, so I have a tendency to go, yes and amen, rapture is the way. But that's what I want. Um, and I, so I have to be careful when we go through Revelation that I'm not just trying to shove on you what my desires and my heart are. I just don't want people to suffer. I don't like that idea. Um, are even to witness it. This clearly shows believers won't suffer, but I don't want to witness it. I don't like that at all. Um, it causes in me, when people are in pain and suffering, it causes a rage in me to stop the one that's causing the suffering. Um, and I don't think that I'm supposed to feel that about judgment when Christ is dishing out the just judgment on people. I shouldn't have anger towards Christ when he's doing exactly what he says he's done. So, that's why I want to be raptured. I just don't want to watch it. So, I don't know. I don't know if that's really a theological stance that I can really claim. It's just a barryism. We'll just call it that. Verse 11. I am coming to you. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, we'll get into the crowns laid before Christ as we continue into Revelation. Um, but this is... Jesus has nothing but good things to say about the church in Philadelphia, but he's saying, hold fast. I don't want you to lose the joy of casting your crowns at the foot of Christ. So he's still, he's saying, you guys are doing great, you're doing amazing things, you're a missionary city, the synagogue, the Jews are coming against you, the Roman Empire is coming against you, you're doing amazing things, but hold fast. Don't back down. Don't give up. Don't Go down a darker path. Like, just hold fast. And I think given all the other cities we've looked at, that were getting close, the other five cities, they let the culture come in, they let Jezebel come inside the church, they're pressed from the outside, that he's saying, don't, don't be like them. You guys are holding fast. Hold the line. Hold the line. I think that's what he's saying. Um, and, and again, there's this economic thing happening where the emperor is saying, stop growing wine, stop doing this. And so there's turmoil happening in this city. There's turmoil happening in Philadelphia. And for a church in Philadelphia to hold the line, claim the faith, not change, not waver, when everything around them is being chaos, that's a bright light. That's a, that's a lighthouse kind of moment. Where everything else around is going crazy, and this place is standing strong and sticking to what they believe and sticking to how they serve, how they love, how they care. That shows everyone um, huge things about Jesus. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So we get this picture that if you hold strong to this, keep the faith, hold strong, you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, this isn't literal, like you don't get turned to stone. But it gives us a picture of one of the most, um, the strongest part of most buildings of most, especially in ancient Near Eastern culture, especially Greek, Roman, column structure. I don't know if you've been, well, here, I'm just going to show you something. So when we were in Israel, um, in Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem last year. We got to go to a couple places. Um, this is Beth Shion. This is a Roman outpost. Um, you might recognize the name in 1 Samuel 31. Um, this is where when Saul and his sons are conquered by the Philistines, they hung their bodies from the walls here at this city. So we got to walk through this city um, and hang out here for a while. These columns were all down, but they put them all back up. And so you would put these giant pillars up, and you wouldn't put roofs on them. You would put giant canvas as like walkways, like a modern day, would you call it a pergola? I don't know what that even word means. I just know people in their backyards. But you had those, you'd have tents and canvas over, and when everything would be crushed and, and taken apart, the pillars were off the skin. That's why we get the phrase, he's a pillar of the community. She's a pillar of the community. That's where it comes from, is that often when things are destroyed and things are shaken and roofs collapse, the pillars stay. It's the strongest foundational part of most of these structures. It holds all the weight. And so this is a, um, when you go, what, what, were they, what they did too is they would put these pillars in such a way that they pointed to something. Now this street, these pillars, led you to a temple, um, to a false god. And so it led to this temple, and so you have these columns and hallways and all these great things that would, you know, be the bathhouse and all that kind of stuff is in this town. Um, this became, um, Best John was kind of like a resort town. Lots of bathhouses, and I have a picture if you want to see it later of the public toilets and all that. Like it's a, It was a place to hang out like a gymnasium, the wrestling area and the bathhouse, the steam room and the hot tub and all that was in this area. But these pillars are what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being a pillar. Because in most earthquakes, most destruction, most of the pillars stood. Now, over thousands of years, they were toppled with modern, with warfare and all kinds of stuff that happened. But as they build these things up, they find the pillars. And they just reassemble them. All the rest of the stuff is gone. But the pillars, the giant columns remain. Oh, this is the picture. That's the public bathhouse. I forgot. Or the toilet. Everyone is sitting on the toilets around the wall. And there's pillars in the middle to hold the tent over so you had a shaded spot to use the bathroom. It's actually, like, if you're into engineering and, like, public works, and it's amazing, like, the way the angles that they had the, things, the gutters dug for all of the excrement and you sat around. It's just, like, it's a 2,000-year-old restroom. Like, this is crazy. Like, at times when people just had outhouses 200 years ago, or some of you have them still if you have cabins up in Centennial, and... They had a public, it's mind-blowing, mind-blowing. I don't know why I put that picture in, just because I wanted to. Um, and then, of course, cute couples. Yeah, we're pretty awesome. All right, now, last verse. He has not let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, why would he say this? He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he just, all the other letters have this. He has an ear letting hear. Because there are letters, there's correction, there's change, there's caution. But then here's this letter, it's a positive letter. Why would he say, again, he has an ear letting hear? I think that's why I make the connection that this is a, an encouraging missionary letter in the midst of what's going on around them, saying, hold the line, preach the gospel, keep it going, you're he wants to, he's afraid that these outside influences are going to come into this church in Philadelphia. It's holding strong. He tells them to hold fast. They're doing everything they're supposed to do, but there's still the cautionary last quote, the last line. He who has an ear, hear. 
Don't let Jezebel in. Don't let the outside culture in. Don't let these things come in. Stand strong. So it brought me, because it's how my dumb brain thinks, um, I was thinking of movies. And the idea of holding fast and holding the line being very similar. Which I like military movies. I like action movies. I don't know if you like them or not. I like to read about them. I was an American history major. I really like studying World War II. I love studying those things. It's, I love studying the Civil War. I, I just I like that. And in every case, you will see lots of things. This is from the movie Gladiator. I found a meme for you all. I don't know if you know this scene. I'm not going to show it to you. It's pretty bloody. But there's a part where, where Maximus is fighting in the arena, and all the gladiators are going to scatter and go fight. And he says, anybody here have military service? And a couple of them say they have. He goes, I can use you. All right, if we hold strong, we, can, we might have a chance. But if we scatter and we just run away, then they're all going to run us down as chariots. So if we hold together then we might have a chance. We might have a chance. Um, or in the movie 300, um, which you can't kind of see it, which is a horribly historically inaccurate movie. Like, don't, you don't watch it for that. You watch it for the violence and for the action and for the story. And even then, maybe you shouldn't watch it. Maybe I should admit that I watched it, but I really like it. Um, but the, there's a point where you have the hot gates and a certain spark, certain spot where 300 Spartans are going to hold back the Persian army to let the rest, and they sacrifice themselves. And the whole point was if they can hold this line, hold this section for a while, they'll be the thing of legends, and they can they can save people. And they held the line. And so there's it's a very militaristic term that Jesus is using through John to give us to hold fast. Whether it's a naval battle, it's a military battle, it's a football game. Like, what happens when the line breaks? When you have a line that can hold back and it gives the quarterback time to throw, and somebody doesn't do their job right and the line breaks or someone blitzes or gets around the line, everything collapses. Everything's a nightmare. Playing basketball, like one of the best ways, or at least... I grew up in Indiana where zone defense was kind of a, was a literal four-letter word. Like, you play man-to-man, and you crush them, and you take them down, and you fight them, and you work hard, and, right? And then a coach would come in and do the zone. Like, I hate the zone because it's just boring, but it holds the line. Like, if you can do it right. So we see this consistent, militaristic, in-our-lives concept of holding the line. And so that we get from Jesus to this church, hold fast to what we have. Hold fast to what you've got. They're preaching the word. They're sharing the word. The gospel is going out. The gospel is going out into the community. It's going out along this trade route. They're holding fast. And so there's a, there's a giant push for us to hold fast. To accept who we are as a church in the location that God has us, in the place he has us, with the people he's asked us to serve, and hold fast to the truth. That if we back down from our missionary imperative, we back down from the, the sharing of the Great Commission, if we back down from sharing our faith with others, and go, you know, they'll figure it out, you know, I'll just, you know. We have to be bold and hold the line. I'm going to leave you with this quote, if I can get it to work. Church, 
church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. From Oswald Smith, the, the church leader. That any church that's not serious about the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. That's what he's calling out to the church in Philadelphia. You've proven your commitment to sharing the truth. The love of God, Christ crucified on the cross, there is only one God. Will you hold fast to that? And I think that same pushes on us. If we're all about just us, and we don't care about the world, we don't care about our neighbors, we don't care about the campus across the street, we don't care about our co-workers, then we, we give up our rights to be called a church. If we aren't sharing the truth of Jesus with others, and that's in a million ways, but if we aren't sharing the love and passion of Christ with others, then are we really a church? We're kind of a lame social club. But if we have a purpose, if we have a purpose to share the truth of Jesus, then it's the most important outpost in a community. We have the keys of hope. We have the truth. And we have a compassion that far surpasses anything else in this town. Because of Jesus. So will you hold fast?